Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. I am a political columnist and I host a podcast for Crooked Media called With Friends Like These. And I'm Dan Dresner. I'm a professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and I write a column for the Washington Post called Spoiler Alerts. It's not about science fiction, though. This podcast is about science fiction and about politics and about where they collide and about other things that go boom. At the moment, we're breaking down season five of The Expanse, and this show is about the second episode, The Churn, but we are planning on doing other stuff. You can suggest the topic or show or book or movie you want us to take on after The Expanse over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash space the nation. You can also give us money or both. We would like both. But also, we're just glad you're here for our very nerdy project. If you want to communicate with us not via Patreon, you can do it on Twitter or Instagram at the same handle, which is at underscore Space the Nation. It's a little joke. At underscore Space the Nation. And now, Dan, we need to talk about episode two, The Churn. It's an episode that I know fans have been waiting for, and because I watched the after show um, content, I know that the series creators have been looking forward to and the actors have been looking forward to. Uh, So let's start with a recap. Okay, let's go on the plot, and there are a lot of things going on. Uh, The first and most important thing from my point of view is that Kamina Drummer is backstage. I had a feeling that was going to score high. Like, I'm not sure of how important it is to, like, the plot of this episode. But, yes, I knew you would be thrilled. Very, very important to me. No. But uh, it is good to see Kara G uh, back as Kamina Drummer. Uh, If you recall, at the end of season four, she had essentially quit her role at the OPA as sort of running Medina Station inside the ring. Uh, Six months later, she apparently has her own crew and, indeed, her own faction on uh, a ship called the DeWalt, and she is back to, you know, authentic uh, belter work, by which I mean pirating. Um, So she manages to assert her claim uh, over a uh, UN ship that has been wounded by another belter ship. Uh, She gets the appropriate tithe, and then discovers that uh, Ashford's ship, which she had put a bounty on, has been found. I was just going to say that I think we should note that she's the humane pirate in this situation. (laughs) This is (laughs) true, yes. She's, for practical, maybe more than moral reasons, she advises the crew to not space people. Well, this is one of those things where I honestly wonder whether, you're right, that she's primarily pointing this out for practical reasons. I, I am convinced there is enough of a moral core to Drummer, however, that she probably also thinks there's a moral reason not to, but she's not going to say that in front of her crew. I agree. I think that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, now we go to Baltimore. Amos is back in Baltimore, uh, which in the 22nd century looks... I think it's 23rd. 23rd century? 25th something. I can't remember how centuries work. The really important point is Baltimore looks not good. Um, <laughs> kind of the same. <laughs> it looks kind of the same. <laughs> you know, there, there's some there's some like, you know, monorails going on. But otherwise, Baltimore looks pretty much like Baltimore. Um, Amos returns and meets uh, Lydia, who uh, Lydia, I would describe. I, I'm going to defer to, to you. Anna. How would you describe Lydia. Lydia? Yeah, well, no, no, no. Meets Lydia's common law husband, Charles. But. Describing the Amias-Lydia relationship, I'm going to defer to you in a little bit. Um, but discovers that Charles is potentially uh, going to be evicted from the uh, the apartment that he lives in because Lydia had made a deal essentially to stay there. Uh, as a result, he punches the local street dealer to get the attention of Eric, who apparently is the local crime lord. 
Uh, we find out from this that uh, Amos meets Eric and realizes that Amos is not Amos. Amos is actually Timothy, uh, who was uh, raised by Lydia. And Amos is called Amos because he killed Amos Burton in a deal with Eric because instead he chose not to kill Eric, but instead to kill Amos, and then uh, took his identity and had to agree to leave Earth. Um, so as a result, uh, he's actually sort of violating the rules by coming back, but nonetheless, they have a reasonably pleasant interaction in what is a very swanky penthouse for a crime lord, and Eric uh, tells Amos that he has changed, and then that arc closes with uh, Amos getting in touch with Chrissy, of uh, Sarala saying that he needs to apparently tie up one more loose end. On Luna, not a ton is happening. Um, basically, we see a few things. Avasarala is in a meeting uh, where she is once again trying to raise the threat posed by uh, Marco Inaris, and Gao smacks her down uh, roughly kind of the way that Avasarala would have smacked Gao down. It's um, kind of ugly. Yeah. And, and uh, also, I want to say Zoom meetings in space look <laughs> exactly like Zoom meetings on Earth, kind of, except that the the squares are just hovering but they they're still kind of awkward i notice like they're still a little bit oh are, are you talking to me i really wanted one of them to say you're muted yes i was i was wondering if there was a mute joke that was going to at some point be dropped down um but it, it would be safe to say that avasarala is not coping terribly well with her mm -hmm. new role um although i did like the fact that the admiral pointed out that avasarala would have been equally cruel to gao if their roles had been interposed indeed had been so uh, when she was UN Secretary General. But nonetheless, it would be safe to say that she is trying to shake the rust off of her thinking. She acknowledges that she's sort of uh, been sloppy on this. Uh, from there, we move to the subplot that I call Trouble in Tycho, um, in which uh, Monica, the reporter, uh, sends a uh, message to Holden saying that she has information. Holden reluctantly decides to try to visit her, goes to her apartment, and discovers that Monica has been abducted. Uh, in the process of trying to find Monica, um, it becomes very clear that there is some inside help at Tycho Station in terms of the kidnapping of Monica, uh, because various security feeds were shut down. Uh, there's a great deal of suspense, but basically uh, Monica is trapped inside a cargo container in open space, uh, punctures the cargo container, um, and with Fred Johnson's help... Uh, Holden and the character, I think his name is Bull, mm -hmm. uh, but basically Fred Johnson's second in command or something, uh, finds her just before, just in time to save her life, although we don't know what happens after that. Now to your favorite, favorite <laughs> setting that doesn't involve drummer. Yes, exactly. This is, this is, let me put it this way. The person in me and the sci-fi geek in me loves Kamina Drummer. The IR geek in me just went nuts over this <laughs> next part. Um, which and I'm is just going to point, IR means international relations. <laughs> right, I'm sorry. Yes, IR means international <laughs> relations. Um, so uh, on Mars... Um, Bobby stops being a shit to Alex, <laughs> finally sort of spills the beans uh, and explains what she has been doing, which is, of course, buying uh, black market weapons because Mars is undergoing major force reductions. As a result, there is a thriving black market for Martian uh, tech, including stealth missiles, which freaks out Alex. I want to point out something here, which is that I, I, I kind of wonder what she was doing with all of it. The fact she sort of just has it all stored away, it's funny to me. <laughs> I, I will say this. <laughs> she just yeah, is like she just opens up like her spare room and it's like right. full of 
I I did get, I'm not going to lie, I I got a little bit of, like, the Dark Knight Rises plot from this, which is, what happens if, like, the Martian equivalent of Bane gets their hands on all this entire, you know... They just have uh, to knock one person off and, like... Yeah, also, like, just one door, that security thing... Bobby clearly needs to beef up the security. And, like, um, get him off Mars. Like, just, like, go, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I don't know. It's funny. It's funny to me. It's not very good weapon security, I would say. Yes, that's Yes, that's a safe statement. Also, we're going to have to talk about Bobby's apartment at some point, but that's a whole separate conversation. Her gym, um, you mean? <laughs> yes, exactly. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in some ways, is it really all that different from the pandemic lives that many people are living at this point? So you She know, lives in her about. gym. That is what it is. It's not, it's like, that's, but you know what? Her priorities, that's her priorities. Like, you know. Yeah. Uh, strength. So, so Bobby suspects uh, Admiral Sovater uh, of being the sort of central cog in all of these sort of black market weapons. As it turns out, uh, Alex served with Sovater when he was in the Martian uh, Navy. Sovater is now a lecturer at the Martian War College. So Alex tries to you know, goes to visit him, uh, listens to his last lecture, tries to raise suspicions. Um, it is safe to say that the Admiral is not thrilled about him. There is one of the Admiral's lieutenants who tries to talk up Alex. They might have coffee later. I have much to talk about with respect to the, the War College content. Um, but needless to say, Alex, I think, is beginning to be a little bit suspicious about what is going on. And I, yes, that whole interaction with the fangirl aide to Sauvetaire is pretty, like... Yes. Alex is, you know... Well, I guess we've never really seen him try to put up a enemy dar, you know? Yeah. Like, he's a really good pilot and is very, I guess, you know, spatially aware, as it were. <laughs> um, but, but maybe he's espionage- not so good. He's good at sensing enemies around him in a ship. Right. His maybe- espionage intelligence might not be the best. Yeah. Um, well, it also, so I think there are two things that are interesting about that last interaction, which is, First, uh, props to the show for finally sort of acknowledging they kind of play fast and loose on this. But the fact is, these guys are celebrities in the solar yeah, system. Yeah, I, I, I liked that, too. You know, so I you know, and you you saw that in the first episode as well, when like all the, the belters are like raising a glass to the Rossi because they know Holden is in the, the bar. And the same thing happens here where the lieutenant sort of says, yeah, we know that you're the first Martian to set foot on an exoplanet. We know like you've done all this stuff. Um, and so even though he's like also part of this crew that apparently, you know, that stole a, a Martian frigate, there is nonetheless some celebrity there, which of course makes him even worse for espionage, I would add. You don't send the celebrity. Like, yeah. you don't send Buzz Aldrin to like infiltrate, you know, <laughs> the Soviet space program, right? Right. Um, I mean, I think the, the defense of Alex is, is that I, because he didn't suspect Sovater in advance, I think he assumed that he was going to go to this and be reassured, no, there's nothing there. There's no there there. We can just move on. When in point of fact, it's very clear there's something there. there. Excellent recap as usual. And now for our thematically appropriate quotes. You know what your problem is? Tell me. You think that if someone's an underdog, that means they're the good guy. Let's start with the first one, which is, um, in some ways, I think the theme of this season and more generally, which is, just because someone is less powerful does not automatically mean they're going to be the good guy. Yeah, there's a lot of talk of asymmetry in this episode, both explicitly and I think implicitly in terms of like who's powerful, who's not, right. um, and what what they bring to the table and and how you can't know 
sometimes. And I also think it's maybe a little bit of self-awareness because I think previous to now, the show has operated under that philosophy. Yes. Pretty pretty explicitly that, yes, the underdogs are the good guys. Yeah, you are supposed to sympathize with the Belters throughout, I think, the first couple of seasons. And, you know, and and to be fair, I think there are certainly individual Belters you might still sympathize with. But, you know, the... The Marco Inaris plan, I think it is safe to say, is not one that, that presumably most viewers are necessarily going to glom on to. Going to quote number two, which is an exchange between um, Holden and Fred. There's a button I pushed it. Jesus Christ. That's really how you go through life, isn't it? That's almost, it's either very important or not important at all, because it's that's Holden's philosophy. Just press See, buttons. I, <laughs> Just so I actually think this is a really important, and it is a oh. major theme of the episode. Oh, well, it's a major theme of the entire show. It's Holden. Yeah. It is Holden. That quote is Holden. But it's not just Holden. So in some ways, this ties into two other, three other things that happen during the show, which is this is all about, do you plan before you act, or do you act before you plan? You know, oh, because good. in some ways... The whole point of that 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 exchange was hold you know basically Fred Johnson saying you just press the button like what did you even think for a second about what you, what you were going to do beforehand but that ties into the way that drummer you know seizes control over her her clan she clearly had thought out in advance what would happen if the ship you know put target lock on her it shows actually the mark of, of good planning good uh, good strategic thinking it ties into what Avasarala says about the need to get into the mind of the enemy, which she admits that she's been bad at, you know, more recently, but she used to be good at. But most importantly, it ties into the lecture that we hear at the Martian War College, um, where Sovater talks, literally quotes, um, you know, Xerxes and also does this sort of long um, preroration about the dangers of planning with, you know, planning until you you essentially plan yourself into inaction. And the point of the speech, of course, was to say, no, sometimes you need to act with conviction rather than plan ahead. So it was interesting to me that in some ways, weird way, Holden and Sovater actually hold the same mindset on this thing. And I would say that that is kind of what starts the series to begin with. The whole Expanse universe happens because metaphorically Holden presses a button, right? Right. Um, the proto-molecule right. is a button, that people press and have no idea what's going to happen next. And I think that, yeah, you're right. I I kind of didn't see that. I just laughed out loud (laughs) and saw it as this quintessentially Holden moment. But I think it's the problem that the series explores. The better way to, I would say it's the tension, because to be fair, there are times where, in fact, you do want to press the button. Oh, I agree. And what I mean, like, it's the problem they explore, you know, the series creators have talked about how one thing that they want to do with the series is show how mankind doesn't change. Yeah. That with all these creations and all these evolutions and all these technological advances, humans are still humans. They mistreat each other. They love each other. And they fuck up. Yes. And every once in a while, things turn out okay. <laughs> and, and again, in some ways, that was also the theme of the the War College lecture where he talks about you know, we've had these various innovations and they change some things, but it shouldn't change your purpose. 
um, which from the Martian perspective might be a little bit questionable. But I was going to say, just, like, it's a, it's it's a really um, provocative thing to say in the context of where he is standing. Well, I, I will say this also, like, so, all right, I, again, the IR, the international relations geek in me was just, like, literally mouth agape during this entire scene because as someone who was actually lectured at various war colleges in this country, it was like, yep, that that's pretty much how it would look. Uh, on the other hand... <laughs> I was a little surprised at like, so you're lecturing at a war college and you're saying, don't think about planning so much. You know, I will. We, we, we can finish talking about this scene here or we can save it for later. It's up to here. you. I, I, I can I could I want to talk about the scene. So let's let's just finish out our quotes. OK. Yes. Oh, right. <laughs> we'll OK. Sorry. It, yes, okay? Yes, yes. Yes, absolutely. Let's bookmark that. OK. OK. I am Kamina Drummer. You respect my claim, or you die and become a story. I tell the next captain. The Kamina drummer um, oh. statement of purpose. Yes. I know your heart melted. That's true. So, do you want so to talk about Martin, it anymore besides your heart melting? Basically, no. I mean, <laughs> believe this way, it, it will be of no secret to any listeners that much as much as Anna, you know, uh, uh, stands West Chatham and, and Amos, it would be safe to say, I stand. Uh, is it G or K or G? I actually don't know. I think it's G. Kara, I think it's G. Yeah, Kara G. G and her performance as Kamina Drummer. And I have to say, I will say, I was slightly disoriented by this because, in some ways, up until now, we know the drummer had a past like this. But in the in the context of the show, we had only seen Drummer in positions of responsibility um, and like OPA responsibilities, opposed to this sort of pirating stuff. Oh, so you mean was, like responsibility to, in a way, institutions? Yeah. Right. Like exactly. She's she, been an institutionalist to some degree. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, when she was at Tycho, when she's on Medina Station, she she is acting in the belief of the OPA and trying to like set up. She, she's trying to engage in state building. She's not doing that anymore. Um, and Although I want to get back to the whole deciding not to space people. Yeah. There was a part of me that, that thought maybe they're laying breadcrumbs here to show that she actually has some kind of plan, larger plan in motion that would serve the purposes of the OPA. That is possible. I mean, again, we, what we don't know is how she got to this spot. I will say this. I, then she's a very good actor because she seemed genuinely surprised, for example. Well, we've already, when, we've already established that. Remember when she yeah. ha- does the deception with Ashcroft in the previous season? With Ashford. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Or, yeah, yeah when, when she does the deception with Ashford. That's in the true. She is a good season. actress. So, so it is possible. Cause like yeah, I would, drummer I, you, is a good actress. I mean, right. Drummer, is Car- a very is, good actress. Car- but Car- Car- is a very good actress. But drummer is also a very good actress. So that's that's true. It is. It's unclear. Like you know where where her headspace is is unclear. I was just. I have to admit, I was disappointed that she was not in episode one. I was very happy that we saw a little bit of her in episode two. I want to see much more of her in the rest of the season. And now to my favorite <laughs> and you know secretly important and dramatic quote which is amos agreeing to have tea <laughs> tea tea sounds great oh much as you want to talk about the war college like yes. i have so much to say about baltimore and the churn and west chatham and like I, which I, I think it's actually chatham oh is it chatham i apologize yeah, to, I, to I, I i i did the whole watch all the after show things mm-hmm. <laughs> with this episode <laughs> Um, which I guess I've been a bad fangirl because I haven't done that before. Um, I've usually just kind of skimmed. Just suffice to say that that is one of the quietest lines that Amos has ever delivered, I think, in the history of the show. And it is inversely 
important to how quietly it's delivered. So I, I have to say, I really did like the symmetry of that scene because the scene starts with Charles trying to shake Amos's hand, which Amos is not having any. He's clearly, you know, working through some stuff. And by the end of the scene, it's almost, I mean, literally, there was a great little acting moment with, with that, that Chatham pulls off where it's like, it's almost like Amos shakes out of the fact that he was in like sort of brute mode and he realizes, wait a minute, there is another human being here who is feeling pain. And he touches him. Yes. Which might be one of the only times in the series we see Amos touch someone with empathy and care. And not... As opposed to other drives. Other drives, yeah. Either lust or violence, basically. Right, exactly. Yes. All right. So, got our quotes out of the way. We've also talked a little bit about the themes of the episode. I want to... Um, explicitly state that I think this episode is very explicit. Um, A lot of people kind of state their purpose in this episode. We have several different characters, in case we weren't watching, in case we weren't paying attention, kind of just explicate their reason for doing what they do. Kamina Drummer, we have the Holden exchange that's like classically Holden. We have the exchange about underdogs. Um, We have a literal explication of philosophy at the War College. Yes. (laughs) And I mean, I don't know if this counts as a theme or just exposition to the story, um, but I thought it was clear that that the series creators are trying to, like, you know, tell us which chess piece is which, let's say. Not just set up their chess pieces, but, like, tell us what the motivations are and maybe um, set some trajectories. Right. I mean, it even goes to the point where Eric says out loud to Amos, you've changed, Mm -hmm. Um, which indeed we knew from watching this episode and from having watched the series, but nonetheless does sort of establish the fact that that Amos is not Timothy in multiple ways. Oh, and we get another statement of purpose from Lydia at the, towards the end of the episode, like she states what she's going to be doing in raising him. Like she explains how she's going to raise him. I thought it was interesting. I mean, again, like maybe it's either bad exposition or good storytelling. <laughs> I don't know. We did have a Mr. Exposition moment with Eric that I thought was kind of clunky, um, where he says, you're supposed to be off Earth. You killed Amos Burton instead right. of me, and I let you have Amos Burton's identity. <laughs> like, well, so this, so I have to say, this is one of these things where, as someone who's not a reader of the books, Clunky as it was, I appreciated that exposition because otherwise I wouldn't have known. I mean, I yeah. knew I knew up till now that Amos clearly had had a something of a life in Baltimore. We know from this episode, from previously in the episode, that he was clearly uh, servicing Johns when he was at a, from a very young age. Then he graduates to Muscle, but we didn't know how he'd, he'd left uh, Earth. But the, the line- life, as they say, and left yeah. Earth, which are yes. two separate things, I think. I think Lydia brings him out of the life, and right. then he does... Um, Leave Earth. The the line it was interesting. You talked about the, one of the lines of Lydia. The other line that Lydia said that I actually thought was was elegant was when when she said, you know, when you're hurting, hurting others is easy, which does in some ways sort of encapsulate Amos's, you know, how Amos was and how Amos is trying not to be. I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. Let's do a smooth transition to giving you a chance to geek out about IR. Oh my God! Yes. <laughs> So I'm sorry, because in some ways, the the reason I am geeking out is that literally the Sovater, when he's talking about the ring gates, actually talks about a concept that I have, 
as God is my witness, an edited volume coming out on the topic um, in asymmetric February. choke points. Well, yes, well, he he describes it as an asymmetrical asymmetric tactical choke point. Um, there is a concept in in international relations that has emerged over the last five years or so called weaponized interdependence, and it's the same thing. Um, essentially, what it says is that if there is some sort of structure or network in which it is difficult to escape from. In other words, you can't bypass it in any way. And you control a central node. You exercise, you know, essentially tremendous, you can exercise tremendous leverage over others. It's literally called the choke point effect within the IR, within IR scholarship. So um, this article that uh, two of my colleagues, Henry Farrell and, and Abraham Newman, published on weaponized interdependence came out in 2019. So it is fascinating to literally see it applied to the perspective of the ring space. And I would add that Sovater's lecture was correct on this point, which is that while controlling one side of the ring or the other side of the ring is symmetrical, the ring space itself is clearly a central node. And if you control that central node, you're essentially you know, can you're acting as the toll bridge. You can control access in terms of trying to get from one, you know, space to the next. And in the real world, is this something like having nuclear weapons or is it about no. controlling a physical space or? So there are two examples that are usually cited, cited as examples of weaponized interdependence. The first would be the internet um, in which there are enough central nodes that are based in the United States that in theory, like literal nodes, like yeah, like literal, phys- okay, yeah, literal physical servers, um, such that it has given the U.S. certain enhanced abilities to to uh, engage in surveillance. Although, admittedly, in, in recent weeks, this is not a great example of that. Um, the other example, an even better example, would be uh, finance. So, SWIFT. Um, there is an organization called SWIFT, which is a data messaging service that is actually set up in Europe, but it basically allows banks to to wire money to and from each other. Um, you have to use SWIFT. And because the reserve currency in global capital markets is the dollar, it means that the U.S. can essentially tell SWIFT to do whatever it wants, which is how, among other things, the United States has been able to sanction Iran um, during the Trump administration, even though European governments, for example, have not wanted to sanction Iran because the, the U.S. government has applied direct pressure on SWIFT. And because SWIFT has no choice but to comply, it's been pressuring Iran. This doesn't mean the coercive pressure has worked, but it has nonetheless punished Iran severely. I have questions. Go ahead. That are actually like, I think, IR questions. Ooh, shoot. One is, isn't having a singular choke point also a weakness? It's a weakness for the network. Because if you strike, like you were talking about internet security, for instance, (laughs) and like the Russia hack... Um, to our internet. Um, That's not really, a, I mean, it wasn't an attack on a choke point. That's an attack on U.S. servers and so forth. It doesn't It doesn't affect the network. So let me put it this way. If you're, you're but correct. But if you could affect the network, if you could somehow, like since, since there are a limited number of places, yeah. limited number of nodes, like it would be the equivalent of blowing up Medina Station. Like if yes. you blew up Medina Station, you would, you would win. Like, sort of, or if you so, take but, over a Medina, Medina station, like right. in some so ways, is, I think it's a weakness. Right. So this is the thing. If It, it kind of depends on the structure that you're talking about. So if, let's say, some other actor could somehow control Swift or control Medina station, then yes, that is a dramatic shift in the balance of power. Um, the problem, of course, is that in, in many cases on Earth, when you're talking about weaponized interdependence, 
the structures are such that you can't necessarily capture the central node. The central node is clearly held by the United States or by some other actor, and trying to displace them is not going to be easy. And if you destroy the central node, you also destroy the network, which usually delivers tremendous amounts of benefits to everyone, which is why destroying the node is not necessarily the thing you want to do. And I guess my next question is a, is maybe just a, a variation on what happens if you destroy the node, which is if you have weaponized interdependence, the more powerful actor, you know, if they hold that node hostage, don't they hurt themselves too? They can, but not necessarily. Like if if and, if, if the United States like was like, yeah. we're not going to play with SWIFT, like we're just what one like where would they go like what would we do oh right no and that number would be, two like yeah. it, we would be hurt by that like if if we didn't use swift the banks in america i presume <laughs> would, it, it, it would not would so cease much to function so the answer is is that that's and this not- would be the same as and a medina station metaphor would be if medina station suddenly was like we're not no one's in the ring space we're not gonna let anybody in the ring space right they would lose their reason for being they would lose the income that they get from uh i think there is like a tariff situation or something there's clearly medina some station. benefits yeah. to medina station yeah so so here's the the reason that weaponized interdependence is such a powerful concept is you're presenting it as an either or And the interesting thing about generally control over central nodes is that it doesn't have to be either or. You can literally selectively sanction. So the better way to think about it would be that if the the OPA had sufficient resources, they could pressure Mars by saying, Medina Station is open to all Belter and Earth ships, but Mars ships ain't allowed. Um, And so, or they do the same to Earth and, and, you know, only let, let Martian ships in. So the key thing about control of the central node is that you can impose sanctions selectively. You don't have to destroy the whole network. You don't have to disrupt the whole network. Um, and so as a result, it, it generally speaking, in terms of, of coercive statecraft, it provides a more targeted mechanism, which doesn't mean that it works, again, but also the repercussions of, of using such sanctions on the actor that's imposing them are far less than sort of more general trade sanctions. I regret we're probably going to have to wrap this oh, section sorry. of the podcast yes, up. No, no, and also, enough. if you're still with us, <laughs> <laughs> just good on you. You get an A in uh, Dr. Dressner's seminar. Uh, sorry, I just we're really probably like weaponized interdependence. <laughs> we're, I'm going to say two things before we move on, which is, I mean, this is going to have to make an appearance in the show at some point. Like, what happens in a shift in that node, mm-hmm. right? And Mars's part in it. Yes. Like if Mars can figure out a way to engage with the Belters in a way that they win somehow. It would be like, safe to say that Sovetair is clearly thinking about how to control that choke point, which is the ring space. And what you that, would do to, to what you would have to do in order would have to, to do done. that, yes. which is a war college problem that we'll right. discuss later. Which, and by and, the way, that's also consistent with his idea of grand strategy, which is the idea of. <laughs> Your purpose stays the same, but you've got to occasionally alter your means as technology changes. Sorry, I'll mm-hmm. shut up. And I forgot the second thing I was going to say. Let's just move on to the churn. Okay. Um, I will say I will try to wrap this up so that we can we can not have an overly long podcast. And I suspect if you're a Expanse fan, you've given this a lot of thought, and there are other podcasts that go deep into it. Um, it's pretty faithful to the book. This is what um, I was going to ask you, because like, as someone who has not read the book, 
this even even it was clear to me that okay, there's a lot of book stuff going on here that is building up, and I'm I just sort of I was curious as someone who is a fan of the book. I mean, it's it's almost too to it. faithful in a way. It's like really? you know mm-hmm. explicit scenes. Like I was when I was watching the scene with Eric, it, mm-hmm. it plays out so exactly like the scene in the book. I was like, oh, have really? I seen this before? Like <laughs> this almost feels like I've seen it before. I did want to note with Eric's character. They cast a disabled actor for mm-hmm. that character, and I think that's fantastic. Um, the disability rights community has been making a lot of noise lately about um, uh, I, not about us without us is the phrase, and I think that making steps like that towards not having an actor act the disability, mm-hmm. instead having someone with a real lived experience bring that to a part is pretty special unfortunately um hopefully i was we'll curious does, does the character does yeah. eric in the book have the disability yes oh okay yes. i was worth wondering yes um and i was interested i watching him maneuver i was actually trying to figure out like did they use did they yeah. and i couldn't tell which i guess is part of the point mm-hmm. um i thought it was funny how one of the scenes was almost a direct reference to the wire <laughs> and i taking place in a very similar environment like a drug deal in baltimore with runners and whatnot maybe that's just what drug deals always look like so this was actually Uh, this was the thing that i was struck by was as you say like there's a lot of scenes that are like 24th century wire and then we get to the penthouse which looked very different (laughs) yeah it did look like if a maybe it's supposed to be kind of a throwback like having an Mm -hmm. english manor would be these days like it's all these old markers of wealth that are even more powerful given that they are probably rare like there's a couple motorcycles and like a pool table and i bet there's not a lot of those around these days Mm -hmm. i know combustible engines are probably not you know very common that's a good point so the other thing i'll say is um let's go back to the tea scene yes i was I have mixed feelings about it because okay. West Chatham does such a good job of undoing Amos. It's almost disorienting mm-hmm. to see him soften that way. Mm. There are physical and and facial differences in how he carries himself, um, specifically like his just looser. Yes, and his face has a has a resting smile, <laughs> like he he doesn't have resting Amos face. <laughs> he maybe has resting Timothy face. I don't know. There we go. But yeah. he has sort of a, a, a pleasant smile on his face as he's listening. And his just entire demeanor is different. And I know that's supposed to represent perhaps him going back. And yet, maybe it's entirely new. Maybe this is an entirely new thing. I wish maybe there'd been a little more discomfort, I guess. Like him not knowing what to do. Like when he puts his hand on Charles's arm and, and says tea would be great, mm-hmm. there's a little discomfort there. Like I think that he telegraphs like he doesn't quite know if this Right, is he's out of his element as it were. He's out yeah. of his element. And I think yeah. after that he quickly becomes in his element and maybe I'm I maybe I'm being overly critical. I, I guess I, the way I, I, would... but I know with Chatham puts a lot of thought into this character and his trauma and how his trauma manifests itself. So but, I assume there's good reasons. And I guess know. the way I would put it is that if you were only watching this episode as a bottle, I would tend to agree with you. But I but I do think that in some ways we've seen that he's clearly a little bit out of sorts from episode one. 
you know, where, again, he literally says, I'm out of context here. You yeah. know, we see the violent shower scene. You know, even his interaction with Avasarala, there's an edge to it um, where he, he sort of recognizes he's going to a place of discomfort. Um, and maybe as a result that it's sort of you wanted to have him, like, continue to have some discomfort, I guess. But, like... For me, there there was more. But maybe he's been on this journey longer than yeah. you know. I, I'm giving him credit for right Th- yeah. that this is the end point of an arc that is really really long, and he may also. I mean, he can't just. I mean, progress, emotional progress, is not linear. So there's got to be some ultra violence coming. <laughs> <laughs> Although there is that scene on the dock where he wants a fight. Mm. You see him want a fight with these kids that come up and like, what are you doing on my turf or whatever? Yeah, and yeah. he turns around and he's ready to fight. And they're like, whatever, old man. Right. And, I, and I think there is actually some subtlety that I was sort of wanting in the tea scene, which is you can see both the disappointment and relief on and his maybe face that, when, and he maybe said, that... when he realized he doesn't have to fight. Right, and that also suggests, by the way, that the T the scene is not a catharsis. The T scene is showing growth by Amos, but he's still wrestling with his demons. Yes, and the other thing I wanted to say about that scene, specifically the T scene, is the mention of sex work is really mm-hmm. casual, which I liked <laughs> and found interesting, that it's not a shame-based reference, that there can be an acknowledgement that sex work as a child is traumatic, for yeah, sure that, and that I, shouldn't happen but right. that sex work in and of itself is not something to be ashamed of like you wouldn't want to add mm-hmm. shame on top of the fact that you were exploited but i will say so as someone who didn't completely know his backstory the casual statement of what he did as a child i did find shocking like you know it, i wasn't it's I, I think you're supposed to find it shocking right, but yeah, i yeah, also yeah. think it shows that in future earth you know future hum- humanity mm-hmm. um perhaps sex work has become so common um it's re- perhaps mostly regulated and but it, probably the child stuff not i'm thinking no um yeah. I'm, I'm thinking the, and, and, I'm thinking- and i just liked i liked that there hmm. wasn't the shame built on top of it yeah that that you can acknowledge that that's happened and not be like oh man like wow you know, but know, not to mention the fact that, of course, clearly it was probably, I'm assuming, um, gay sex work. And again, that yes. taboo is not there as well. Oh, there's a quote to wrap up the churn discussion, uh, which is, uh, I guess we should say the churn is the the earth is actually what I've always thought that it refers to is the society on earth at this moment. But Amos explains it is you're either at the bottom or the top and everything in the middle is the churn you could see it as sort of a chaos as a ladder kind of moment too to reference other prestige television um, or if you want to go full marxist you can also argue maybe it's capitalism oh it definitely is capitalism yeah. yes <laughs> which is also chaos as a ladder yeah. um all right uh let's move on to other scenes and plot points that weren't necessarily our favorites but are important and I want to lead with Avasarala and Nancy Gao. Mm-hmm. This is one of those things I think it's super important to the overall arc of the series. It's just building in terms of the show ep- episode. The The explicit things that are happening in the show are, are chess pieces. Um, but I, I did love the interaction between Nancy Gao and Avasarala. Um, I also found um, some great uh, subtle acting there about Avasarala's questioning her own priorities, mm-hmm. questioning what she does, 
particularly the scene with her daughter yeah 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 where where, is she in the right place doing the right thing i think she's up until this point just never had any doubts just Mm -hmm. known that she's she is on the on the side of the well the probably not the side of the angels but (laughs) she that she is doing what needs to be done for the right reasons sometimes using methods that are not so immoral methods right yes yeah and i think in this episode we see her struggling with who she is like what yeah she's no doing. i think i you're i think i think you're right in some ways she's struggling in, on two levels she's struggling with is this the right thing to be doing and i think also she admits in the bar she, she's struggling with actually doing it in other words that that you know she feels she's off her game i think in some ways and so is it is it because she she has questions about the 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 purpose that is causing her to be off her game or is it that she's still frankly just sulking over the fact that she's no longer who you know she no longer has the power that she did before and of course the strategic plot point here is what the fuck is marcos anaros doing and who it's interesting to add does not appear throughout this episode and yet is clearly lurking in terms of a lot of the things that are being said right we do see a scene of an asteroid detection station (laughs) (laughs) which is a little bit of a like putting a signpost up and an um, asteroid going by, and nonetheless, it not detecting it. Yeah. Well, ooh, what, what is yes. happening? Exactly, yes. yes. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about Holden and Monica. <laughs> um, I felt this was like a little bit extraneous to the to the episode. Um, it felt like it took place on another episode almost, like not just in Tycho Station, but it very. But that's also where Holden is right now. He is yeah. apart from everyone. Like he's not having the same kind of journey that everyone else is. So everyone else is on a mm-hmm. journey. <laughs> My favorite Holden scene throughout this entire episode was easily him checking his messages, where he's just like, he's on the raw scene, he's like, Clearly flipping. It's it's doing very the relatable. Of us going through our very, phone. Very very like, relatable. No messages, really. No messages. No messages. No messages. Oh, Monica left me a message. He's clearly un- not thrilled about that. But like, you know, he has nothing else to do, and so he winds up chasing that that down that rabbit. And I, as a journalist, am always interested in the portrayal <laughs> of Monica. I think she's portrayed in a complex way, which is probably good. I felt like this is setting up something, but it didn't. It didn't feel as important as as it was acted. I mean, I think the acting was good. The special effects were good. I think it's a, th- but the, the stakes felt weird. I I don't know. Like I guess I, the way to, I, well, I also thought, well, they could kill her off because yeah. you know, like they do kill people off. Right. Um, no, I think the, I, let me put it this way: it was an easy plot to describe because not a lot happens actually. Um, and, but nonetheless, it is gripping in you know in the it, it's set up you know it's set up as a ticking yeah. time bomb, and so that's. There's elements of that, and as you say, Monica was is a sufficiently peripheral character that if they had decided to kill her off, I wouldn't have like been there was genuine suspense because exactly. they, they might have killed her off, and also we get some more insight into where Fred is, like where his head is at, mm-hmm. and this new character that's actually pulled from some earlier books, Bull, huh. is um, fleshed out a little bit, and we get to wonder: is he truly an asshole, or is he just acting like an asshole, like? Is he is he a good guy or a bad guy? I think they they kind of, you know. Well, I think you, it would be safe to say the other thing this that plot line reveals is that, and weirdly, I never thought I would say this before. Fred might be a little bit too trusting. That you know he's been relatively, he's been sort of feeling his oats. You know, both in the first two episodes, he's like the OPA is on the rise. We're doing well, and you know he doesn't want to acknowledge that there might be troubles in Tycho Station, and he clearly seems to trust 
bowl because presumably from their shared past. And I kind of have to wonder if that's justified or not. We will see as this goes forward. Yeah, I think that this is um, a set piece that is part of the larger puzzle because we're going to need to get the protomolecule involved again. I wanted to note that the protomolecule has kind of exited the stage for the most part. Like it, It's always been a little bit of a MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. The reason things happen, but not in and of itself important. But it's really absent, you know, so right. far. It's, I mean, the one thing we know is that Monica keeps insisting that someone is experimenting on the protomolecule, on the OPA's um, uh, possession of the protomolecule. And we're going to need to get some payoff on that. But yes, I have to say, like, you know, in terms of as a viewer, when I think, you know, if I'm prioritizing threats at this point, the stealth asteroid is like way up here and the, the protomolecule not nearly as much. So uh, to wrap up, I want to turn to you. Dan, as a non-reader of the books, so you can kind of have a fresh question, perhaps, about what's going on, where you think things are going, what you'd like to see in the next couple episodes. I, I, let me put this way. I think my concern is, so we knew from episode one that that asteroid hitting Earth has 12 days left in it. And what I'm wondering is, does all of season five take place within those 12 days? Or are we going to get some resolution on that? And I'm also mildly terrified about whether we get some resolution on that, given what could happen. Those are good concerns to have. (laughs) I will attempt not to give any spoilers. Uh, I think because I read the books and have an idea of the shape of the season um, and the key events that, that might happen, what I am interested has to do more with the um, kind of inner workings of the show and the plot and the characters. I'm excited to see Naomi's plot unfold. It Which didn't happen in this amazing episode, yeah. in the oh, books. Really? Like it's Ooh, really good in the books and like exciting and also um, emotionally compelling, all of those things. I am also interested in Wes Chatham's arc. Yeah. Um, Amos isn't just my favorite character. Wes Chatham is also like my favorite person <laughs> having to do with the show. I've interviewed most of the cast before and he was just a great interview. Yeah. He's very smart, very funny. Um, he takes his craft seriously, but not himself. And he's also done more right research on, on trauma mm-hmm. and uh, physical trauma, body trauma, sexual yeah. trauma than any, I'm going to say that any man i've ever met Fair enough. and no knock against men or maybe a knock against men but this is usually a subject that that women come to from experience mm. and the fact that he was read so deeply in that and re- used it for his character is so impressive and i also will say like i'm a little threatened because he's a great podcast host uh, <laughs> if you watch the after show that's on youtube he just does a great job you know, and so he's a great character. He's uh, seems like a, an incredibly good person. I would really like to be his friend. If you're listening, Wes, DM me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I'm, I just I'm interested and excited to see how he takes the rest of the journey. Uh, the way the way Amos. I would put it is that in some ways, because the crew of the Rossi is now all scattered into the four winds. It, it does the, – the sort of chess analogy you, you gave I think is appropriate, which is we are now entering middle game. Um, and I'm kind of curious to see, you know, towards the end, does the, the crew reunite in this season or how does that play out? And I can say even having read the books, like they are very um, intentionally picking and choosing what parts of the books they use and mm-hmm. they are mixing up the books. Mm. Overall themes stay the same. Some scenes stay the same. But it – 
I could, I could be surprised by, by where they go. Uh, I didn't want to end the episode without noting a tweet that we got. <laughs> yes. So I <laughs> on the occasion of the announcement of Space Force's official rankings, which so, include yes. Guardian of the well, not Guardian of the Galaxy, just Guardians, yes, Guardian, they're, they're Guardians. So, but they also announced they they introduced this poster that God help me looked like a rejected poster from an MCU film about Guardians of the Galaxy, and so I I think I tweeted something like you know this 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 is just ridiculous and laughable, and then I also pointed out like it, within the the poster there it is something that looks like a point of light that impacting the earth. And I was like, what the hell is this? Let's talk about this. At which point, uh, I believe his name is Keon Alexander, uh, the actor who plays Marco Anaris. Thank you for the for tweeting in response or for quote tweeting it, where he sort of says XO Marco, uh, which which does suggest to me that that uh, that that stealth asteroid is, is really heading on its way. It's a genuine danger. Yes. Time for us to beam out. A reminder that you can reach out to us via Twitter or Instagram at our very hilarious <laughs> handle <laughs> at underscore space the nation. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash space the nation. Until next time, I am Anna Marie Cox. And I am Dan Dresner. Keep this channel open for more. <laughs>